Would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. You know, over uh, the years of getting to counsel people, um, one thing that uh, is really heavy is our parents who are watching wayward children in their lives. Uh, parents that have seen their children raised in a, in a church, and a, in a godly home, and they see their children going off into ways that they just can't understand, they can't imagine. And, and perhaps some of you here have experienced that. Uh, children that once professed faith in Christ are living in a way that just seems to go so counter to it in their lives, in their actions. That the ways that they used to think, the ways that they used to speak, the ways that they used to act are now radically different. And maybe you as a parent sit here and you wonder and you're perplexed and you are so discouraged. Maybe, maybe you found yourself at times just so defeated. I, I know I've sat with some parents that question whether they did something wrong and maybe I was not a good enough parent and and maybe I should have done something differently. And, and the vast majority of us could look back and see things that we could have done differently, but that's not the issue. Our child has now been taken over by something that has gotten their mind, and whoever has their mind has taken over their lives. And you pray, you beg, you plead, you cry. That's what Paul's going through right now as he looks at his children, not physical children, but spiritual children, that have walked away in some ways from their relationship horizontally with him, and he's concerned that they're walking away from their faith in Christ. As we've been looking at this book of Galatians, we're now in the fourth chapter, and and just taking an a eagle's eye view of where we've been before we camp down on verses 8 through 20 today. In chapter 1, you, you saw that Paul had this high calling. And Paul was called to the ministry by Christ himself. And if you remember, part of the reason why he needed to establish his apostolic authority to them was that there were people in this world that were challenging his apostleship calling him a non-apostle so that if he is not in the right mission, then you don't have to listen to his message. A second way they challenged him was his motive. They said that, okay, now he's not a real apostle, but he also has an impure motive. He doesn't want to do this for the glory of God. He's not doing this for your good. So most of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2 is about Paul establishing his apostolic authority, that, that I have been called to this position by Christ himself, and it was on the road to Damascus that he was called to faith. And if you remember in the beginning of chapter 1, it talked about grace and then faith, that it was God who, his, by his amazing grace, has given us salvation, and that has brought us peace with God, grace and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, that God has done what we do not deserve. He has done exactly what we do not deserve. He has given us a life with him. And then Paul found himself so concerned that they were deserting him, deserting actually not him, but deserting 
Christ and the gospel. He, he used the military term of desertion. It's like you've become a traitor to the gospel. That any time that you add to the gospel, if you add to Christ, you are subtracting Christ. That's Paul's concern. And Paul even went so far to say that there is a curse that will be placed upon the person that believes that the gospel is going to come by any person but Christ alone. Paul was, had this cause in his life, and his cause was that he wasn't looking to see a righteousness of his own, but he wanted Christ's righteousness to be so revealed in his life, and he went back and told us about his own testimony. He told about how he used to be in this God-forsaken life, this works righteousness, this works-based salvation that provided him no salvation at all. Paul even went to the place in chapter 2 of saying that I did not have my disciple circumcised so that I don't have to fulfill, they did not have to fulfill that Mosaic law. That somebody could be in Christ without having to fulfill those external laws that had passed away. Paul went to the place where he actually confronted the apostle Peter because Peter's life was acting hypocritically. He is saying that the gospel has to be so firm and so firm in our lives that nothing else matters. His, his true conviction is that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That is his conviction. In chapter 3, he talked about the fact that we have been crucified with Christ. We don't live, but Christ lives in us. We have a union that, that Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And that, that amazing union that we have in Christ. He talked about the fact that you're going to be counted righteous. Not because of the works that you do. You're counted righteous because of the perfect work of Christ and Christ alone. Christ became a curse for you, he said. He took your sin and God's wrath for your sin upon himself. And he became a curse as he hung on a cross for you. Christ was made sin so that we could be made righteous. And then Paul talked about this great covenant that was there. That God has this permanent relationship with you, this bounding relationship with you. That he has he set this out in relationship with you before you've ever done anything. And he used the example of Abraham. He said, I have counted Abraham righteous 430 years before there was ever a law that was there. That your righteousness is not based on the things that you do. Your righteousness is based on the person that you're connected with. Now, Paul has gotten to this place where he is talking about their conversion in Romans, I'm sorry, um, my favorite book, Galatians 4, verse 8. He talks about this idea that you were converted to faith. Look with me here. He says, formerly, when you did not know God or when you were enslaved to those that were by nature are not God. Paul is asking you to look back. You know, a lot of times in counseling, I will ask people to look back. Look back at where you were in your past and look at where you are today. See, as you look back, in some ways you can see the growth and the change that has happened in your life so dramatically, and you have to sit there and go, 
praise the Lord, because he has done something. This is what I used to be. I was formerly this, and now today I am something radically different. Paul is saying, I need you to look back. Formerly, you did not know God, but you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God. Was Paul concerned that these people were going back to their pagan worship of false gods? I I don't believe that that's what Paul was concerned about. He wasn't concerned that they were going back into their Roman gods any longer. But what he was concerned about is that they had replaced the true and the living God with something other. See, he was concerned about idolatry in their lives. And idolatry is anything we do and anything that comes into our lives that is going to replace Christ in our lives. In verse 9, he says this, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to those weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? That you were freed, Paul is saying. You were freed from this path. Why would you ever want to go back? There's so many of us, you know, I sit in this counseling office and you see so many people at times who they've been freed from a pattern in their lives and they start down a good path and what do they do? They go back. And, and you, it breaks my heart as a counselor to see them go back to this old pattern, go back to this way of thinking, go back to this way of living that was so suffocating. It was bondage. It had no freedom in their lives. Well, Paul was concerned about that as well. He was concerned that these weak and elementary principles that he was talking about are these things of this earth that are keeping your focus away from Christ. And the issue is this, it's always going to enslave you. I've used this quote before, but Augustine said this, that God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. That it is only in the person and work of Christ that you're ever going to find real rest in your life. And Paul was concerned that these weak and elementary things, that the spiritual forces of evil were taking things of this world and applying it to your life, and now you're going to find yourself in bondage. I don't know what it is here on this earth that is drawing you, but there are things that will draw you away from knowing God. And being known by God. I find it interesting here that Paul said in verse 9, he says, but now that you have come to know God, that's a deep and intimate, it's a personal relationship with God. It's that you have gone into a deep relationship, experiential relationship with God. But he said this, he said, it wasn't that you've come to know God, but God has come to know you. That every single person in this room that God knows who you are. But there are some in this room that have a, a deep and personal relationship, an intimate relationship with God because of Christ alone, and that God knows you. He knows every thought that you've had, every word that you've spoken, every action that you've done, and he loves you. On your worst day, he still loves you infinitely. He accepts you totally. He forgives you completely because of his covenantal relationship with you. In Amos chapter 3 Verse 2, it says this. 
You only have I known of all the families of earth. Therefore, I will punish you from all your iniquity. Do two walk together unless they agree. But this idea that you alone have I known, that he had placed himself in a covenantal relationship with his people. And yes, his people were straying here in Amos, but God's covenantal relationship, his continual relationship, I am not ever going to leave you, God promises. So this morning, I want you to know that not only are you, is this this threat of this darkness that I could go back to enslavement, but there's this promise of God's mercy that he knows you. He has found you. By his electing grace, he has predetermined you. It is not by mistake that you're here this morning. God wants to be wrapping his arms around you. Those that are out in the world have a knowledge of God. We see that in Romans. It's a guilty knowledge of God. That every single person in this world knows in some way that there's a God, even though they may reject it. And Romans 1 tells us that these people will do this. What they will do is that instead of the true and living God, what they do is they fail to glorify God and fail to have gratitude to God. So what they do is they replace God with something here on this earth. I think in some ways that's what Paul is getting at here with these weak and worthless and elementary principles. Why would you ever want to go back? Why would you want to go back to the thing that enslaved you? Are you going back to your debt-bound, your sin, guilt, and um, sin-impoverished, your guilt-ridden life? Do you want to go back to enslavement once again in your life? You're going backwards, Paul is saying, and you're going to lose your joy. It, it reminds me of the um, Exodus. You remember the story of the Exodus, where God... God's people had been in bondage for 400 years and in bondage in Egypt and they're crying out to God, release us, free us, set us free. And God brings his prophet Moses and let my people go. And they went out of Egypt. They've gone through this desert time. God is taking them to the promised land and what do they want to do when they're in the middle of the desert? What are they crying back? I want to go back to Egypt. So that when life gets hard, where do they want to go back to? They want to go back to enslavement. That makes no sense. It's crazy. You're swapping light for darkness. You're swapping life for death. You're swapping freedom for bondage. Paul doesn't, he says, it just doesn't make sense why you would want to go back to the very thing that you've been set free from. In verse 10, it says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Uh, those were all part of the Jewish festivals. The, the days are probably Sabbath. The months are probably the new moon, new moon. The seasons may be Jewish festivals. The years could be Rosh Hashanah or it could be year of Jubilee. We're, whatever it is, you're going back to those things as though those are going to earn you salvation. See, what we tend to do as human beings is that we hold on to religious rituals. So maybe it's not days and seasons, but maybe it's baptism or how much time I do in the church or how many days I go here or all these type of things that we add to our lives that we think that we need to do that in order to be saved. We don't. Salvation is that God chose you before the foundation of this world. 
Salvation is that God predestined you. Salvation is that God knows you. Salvation is found in the fact that God loves you, that he rescued you, that he freed you, that he forgave you. Now you're going back. Salvation is not by rites or rituals. None of that has any part in earning my salvation. There's no combination of faith plus works that is ever going to do anything to get me into the kingdom of heaven. Salvation is resting on the perfect work of Christ and in Christ alone. Paul had a fear that their idolatry was now going to lead them to a place of maybe you're really not saved. In verse 11, he says, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. One of the hardest things as a uh, pastor is to, or a counselor, is to, to watch people that you've poured your life into walk away. We know that we're not perfect men. We're not. But we've been given this treasure from God, this amazing gospel message, the only message that will ever set anybody free, the only message that will ever cure a person's guilt and alienation and, and pain and suffering in this life, the only thing that will ever set them free is the gospel of God's free grace and some people walk away. Jesus had given an illustration. Remember the four soils? Jesus had given an illustration of sowing soils. And there was one soil that was stony ground. The seed would go onto the soil and immediately it would sprout up. But then when the cares of this world came, it's gone. And Paul was concerned deeply that maybe what he had seen in their lives was just external that there was not a real internal change. I don't think Paul deeply believed that because he calls them brothers. He calls them my children. But he was saying this, that there is this fear of apostasy. We don't talk about this much today. But apostasy is this idea that you've rejected Christ, that you've sat in a church year after year, you've heard gospel messages time after time, you've opened the word You've been in Bible study, you've been in meetings, you've heard the good news of faith, and you walk away. And the warning was strong in the New Testament that they went out from us, but they weren't of us. The warning was strong in Hebrews that if you turn away from the beauty of the gospel, where else are you going to go? That doesn't mean that we don't have times that we slip, don't misunderstand me doesn't mean that there aren't times that we backslide. We do. But there are some people, sad to say, as I look at your faces this morning, there are some people that sit in this church who have never trusted in Christ alone for their personal, as their personal Savior. And you being here in this church doesn't save you. You going into the waters of baptism doesn't save you. You giving money towards this building doesn't save you. You are saved alone by Christ alone. 
and Paul is in fear that there are people that will sit here today and if today is the last day of your life, you're going to an eternity in hell because you've never trusted in Christ. That is why Paul is so adamant and so angry and frustrated. Why are you turning away from the one thing that's going to bring you hope in life? Now, Paul has been really strong, even up to this point. You know, if you read Paul's letters, I love Paul. Paul usually starts out his letters with some flowery language, how much I love you, how much I've been praying for you, how intimate we are with one another. Paul had none of that. We have gone four chapters And now Paul turns his tone. Verse 12. Brothers. My version says, I entreat you. It's almost as if he is on his knees saying, I beg you. I beg you. Become as I am. For I also have become as you are. I believe what Paul is saying is this. I was a legalist, he said. You remember my life, Paul said. I was a Judaizer. I was a legalist. I was a Pharisee. I thought that my religious life was going to earn me salvation. And then then Christ captivated me on the road to Damascus. He opened my eyes to see that I was persecuting him, that I was against him. And he has drawn me to faith in him. I didn't deserve it. I was on the road to imprison Christians. And Christ brought me to faith in him. Amazing grace was sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That Paul says, I used to be like that, and then Christ drew me to faith. Why are you going from where you were back to where I was? It makes no sense. Paul said, I became almost like a Gentile in certain things, in certain actions, to win you. Now you're going back to becoming me like a Pharisee? Paul is begging Maybe some parents in this room have begged their kids in the same way. I beg you, don't do this. Don't go back to that. This pastor's heart, this pastor's plea, that Lord, keep them from falling. He's begging them. Lord, he then goes to this next step. He says, He's not only just pleading that they won't do it. He says in verse 13, I want you to remember our past relationship. He says this, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. So what apparently happened was this. Paul probably did not plan to go to Galatia wasn't on his map of where he was going to go. Some believe that he caught some type of sickness, maybe maybe malaria. I tend to believe it was an eye issue. Could be both. Malaria does create some issues with your eyes as well. But whatever it was, there was some sickness that caused Paul to go from where he was to Galatia, a better climate in this area. The thought was that he was going to this area because it was a better climate. He was going to be healing in that place. So God had sovereignly ordained, for all our health, wealth, and prosperity gospel people, um, God had sovereignly planned his sickness 
to be used to bring about salvation to these Galatian believers. See, God can work all things together for good. God can take the thing that is so troublesome in our lives, the pain, the suffering, the tears, the troubles that you're going through, and God can use that as an opportunity to share the good news with others. I think that's exactly what he did. He says, don't you remember that it was my bodily ailment, that, that sickness that was so disgusting. Some think it was this eye disease that caused his eyes just to cake over and water, and it was disgusting. And Paul needed help to clean these things, and Paul couldn't see. And they were there helping him. They treated him as he was an angel. as though he was Christ Jesus himself. And Paul says, I want you to remember my past relationship with you. I became as you are and you served me, this reciprocal relationship. And Paul says in verse 15, what then became of the blessing that you once felt? Where is your joy? For I testify to you that if it were possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Paul is so concerned that they are walking away from the only thing that's going to give them joy. They, they said that they would, he would believe that they could even gouge out their eyes. There was no ability to transplant eyes back then. I guess we may have that ability today. But there was no ability to do that. So Paul is just using an illustration that if you could have taken out your own eyes, you would have given them to me. Paul um, probably had an eye, major eye issue because he's using this illustration. And at the end of the book, he talks about the fact that I'm writing this with such big letters. His eyesight was pretty poor. Uh, I find an interesting uh, illustration in the book of Acts where Paul is standing before the high priest. I don't know if you remember this. He's standing before the high priest and Paul got a little blunt uh, before the high priest. And one of the people said, how dare you speak to the high priest that way? And Paul said, I didn't realize that it was the high priest. He couldn't see. Now, whether that was on the road to Damascus when his eyes were blinded and maybe that was part of the suffering that he had to deal with all his life, I have no idea. But they would have gouged out their own eyes and given it to him. That's the relationship that they had in the past. But now let's look at the present struggle. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the what? The truth. You ever find that in relationship with somebody that you tell them the truth and now they think you've become their enemy? And, and the most loving thing that we could do to somebody is to, to let you know that I am so concerned about the path that you're going through. Paul is saying that I am hurting, I am in pain, I am afraid for the loss of our relationship. I have such genuine sorrow for what is happening, and I am so concerned that you're on the precipice, you're ready to fall. I love you deeply, I love you so much that I'm going to tell you the truth. So Paul makes a plea. He talks about their past relationship. He talks about the present struggle. And then he talks about this persuasive warning. He warns them. He says, verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Paul gives them a persuasive warning, and he says this. 
These false teachers are looking to flatter you. They're going after you. They're courting you. But it's not for a commendable purpose. I was thinking about the Judaizers of our day. The people where you can turn on a TV today and these false teachers that may use the name of Christ, but they never talk about his cross. They may talk about heaven, but they never talk about judgment. They talk about heaven, but they never talk about hell. And they tell you to give them a lot of money to their ministry. These are the Judaizers today that would say that, you know what, your life will be so much better if you just did this. If you just gave a little bit more money to our ministry, then God will bless you. These Judaizers today want you to become dependent upon them. They, they grab emotionally needy people, and they want those emotionally needy people to become dependent upon them. These Judaizers today want you to obey them, to love them, to adore them, to follow them. But that's not the goal of a gospel preacher. The goal of the gospel preacher is I want you to become dependent upon Christ. I want you to know that your greatest need is not found in in us as human pastors, but the greatest need is found in the senior pastor of this church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your greatest need is not found in obeying us primarily. It is about obeying Christ, loving Christ, adoring Christ, following Christ. Judaizers' methods, what they do, what do they preach? They preach easy sermons because they want to satisfy you. They sing songs all about you. They preach words all about you. They tell you exactly what you want to hear, but that's not a gospel preacher. A gospel preacher is going to tell you the truth and love you through telling you that truth. And Paul is giving them a warning that the people that you're listening to are going to take you down a path that's going to lead to perhaps your destruction. Paul says, I'm not that way. Look at verse 18. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, not only when I am present with you, And he says, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth as to Christ is formed in you. Paul moves from the persuasive warning to finally his his passionate desire. My desire, Tim and Doug's desire for every single one in this room is this, that Christ is formed in you. Paul starts with this level of endearment. He says, my little children. This is the only time in all of Paul's writings that he's actually going to use this phrase, my little children. John uses it a lot of times in his writings, but Paul is only going to use it here. And I think it's because Paul has been so hard on them to this point, he just wants to remind them, you're my children. You're my babies. I, he, he goes back into the labor room and he, he thinks of that baby that's being born and all the pain that comes from that baby being born into this world and the mom goes through that pain and then you have this beautiful baby that you hold in your arms. And Paul is using this picture of himself as a woman in labor. He says, I am going back to the labor room. Paul is like a father. Paul is like a mother. And Paul is looking at these children as his own. 
His major, his major desire is that Christ be formed in you. The Greek word morphe means that the external manifestation that is consistent with the internal reality. Christ is in you if you're in Christ. But Christ needs to be formed in you if you're in Christ. You know, one of the concerns I have today is this. We don't talk much about holiness. And I've got one finger out, three fingers a point back. How much time do we spend talking about obedience? How is it that we have believers in the Lord Jesus Christ willfully sinning? They know it. And there is no concern about it. Living lives that look more like the world than more like Christ. See, salvation is not just that I, I pray to prayer and I'm, I'm in the family. Salvation is, is three parts. It's, it's you've been justified. You've been declared right before God. And that was a wonderful gift that God has given you. And at the end is glorification. I am going to be made like Christ, new and perfect in heaven. But in the middle is sanctification, where you are growing to become more and more like Christ, more in holiness, more in sanctification. You are resembling resembling the character and you're resembling the conduct of God in your life. And Paul is so concerned that holiness has left them, godliness has left them, obedience has left them, a separation from sin has left them. They have become less and less righteous externally. Paul is concerned that their justification is not going to come by works, but their sanctification is going to come by Christ. Justification came by Christ alone. Sanctification comes by Christ alone. It all has to be about Christ. So I ask you this morning, are you starting to look more and more like Christ? I often say to my people I work with, does your life look different today than it did five years ago? A year ago? six months ago. That if Christ is in you, Christ wants to live through you. So let him do that. By his Holy Spirit, let him display the beauty and the wonder of who Christ is. Let him display Christ's righteousness in your life and let him change you. Let him take you away from the dangers of this world into the safety of a loving father's arms and let him reflect himself in your life and through your life so that people outside this building are going to be drawn to faith in you. Faith in Christ, not faith in you. So Paul is finding himself perplexed. I wish I could be present with you so that I can change my tone. He says, I am perplexed about you. I am I'm frustrated. I'm grieved. I'm confused. I just don't get it. So this morning, I want you to consider this. Your justification makes you right before God. God has done it all. Justification, God imputes his righteousness into your life so that you are declared right before him. 
In sanctification, God infuses you with his grace so that he enables you to become more and more like him in your life. In justification, your, your sin is pardoned. It is forgiven. You've been set free. In sanctification, your sin is going to be subdued over and over again. In justification, every single one of us that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are justified equally. In sanctification, because it's progressive, some of us are more holy in our lives than others. In justification in our lives, it is perfect. It never changes. For sanctification, there is a progressive change in your life. It's a gradual process where you start to look more and more like Christ. Paul says that the law was never going to free you from guilt. It was never going to free you from condemnation. The law was never going to conquer your flesh. The law was never going to deal with forgiveness in your life. The law was never going to do anything but point you to the only one that can, Christ. Jesus is perfect. He's sinless. He lived actively for you, and then he died in your place for you if you trust in him. So today I want you to know this. It's all about Christ. Paul looked at his sons and his daughters and he was afraid that they had gone back to an old way of life. I pray that as I look out at you that you're not going back to an old way of life. Paul was concerned about idolatry, anything but Christ ruling their lives. I'm concerned for that for you as well. Paul went back and talked about the fact of his prior relationship with them. I became like you. Don't become like I used to be. Paul is giving them a persuasive warning that there are some people out there that are looking to take you astray. And Paul's passionate desire is that we start to look more and more and more like Christ. Is that your desire this morning? So, Father, I pray... that you would remind us of the, um, the desperate need that we have to keep Christ in the center of our lives. Father, I, I, am, I would believe that the vast majority of us in this room know Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our justification is secure. That can't be taken away. We can't lose our salvation. A true believer in here, a true regenerate person is always going to be saved. But Father, I do fear that there may be some in this room who have come here week after week, month after month, year after year, and have never bent their knee and trusted in your Son alone. So today, Father, I pray that you would open their hearts to know that salvation is only going to come by your Son. Father, I pray for us that do know you, I pray that not only would we rest in our justification, but I pray that we'd be filled by your spirit in our sanctification. That more and more we start to look like Christ so that Christ is formed in us. Father, help us to become more obedient. Help us to become more holy. Help us to become more righteous practically, not to earn our salvation, no, Lord, but to display the fact that there's real salvation in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.